Welcome to the Indie Matters Podcast, where we talk about the issues that matter most to Nevada. I'm John Ralston, the editor of the Nevada Independent. Each week, we'll discuss matters of importance that we covered and look ahead to what's coming in the Nevada Independent. We're a nonprofit website. You can find us at the NevadaIndependent.com. I'm joined today by Michelle Rendells, one of our reporters. Hi, Michelle. Hi, John. And our special guest today is the, the person who runs the Spanish language page at the Nevada Independent, Luce Gray. Welcome Thank to the you, podcast. Thank you, John. How are you? Good. Thanks so much uh, for coming. All right. A lot to cover today, uh, ladies. Let's start with uh, the big news of the week which is that Adam Laxalt, much anticipated, uh, long overdue announcement uh, for governor. Uh, he's the attorney general. He's the favorite on the Republican side, probably the favorite in, in the race, I think, by uh, a slight margin. Both of you uh, went to that announcement loose. Uh, mm -hmm. Tell me what you did. Well, on uh, Wednesday, we attended Adam Laxalt's campaign announcement event, which was held at a warehouse for the cleaning supply company Brady Industries in Las Vegas. There were about 200 people there in a small protest across the street. Protesters were behind big black signs that said extremists, unethical, incompetent, and they included representatives from Planned Parenthood and gun control groups that are angry that Laxell says a gun background check law passed by voters can't be enforced. He's also been criticized because he sued the federal government over President Obama's plan to expand the DACA program and extend it to parents of dreamers. After his speech, Laxell gave short interviews to three reporters, but was taken away after less than three minutes of talking to the media. He has 70 more stops around Nevada over the next week to introduce the campaign. Lusa, you also uh, had the foresight to do a uh, Facebook Live uh, so we have the entire thing on video that's posted uh, with the story. That was great that you did that. The quality on that uh, was uh, phenomenal. Just real quickly, I just want to ask you a couple quick questions, Luz. You said there were about 200 people there, which, by the way, is a pretty good turnout for, for an announcement. It was at Brady Industries. Mm -hmm. Bill Brady is a big Republican uh, donor. He's a conservative. You said there were some protesters there from some of these progressive groups. How, how many protesters were there? Mm, I would say like around 30, they probably. Got, that's not bad either for, mm -hmm. for, for, for a protest. And was he well-received by the crowd, did you think? Yes, definitely. A lot of clapping. They, they were holding these signs. Of course, they were really excited to see him and hear what his plan is. It's a big deal for the Republicans. Adam Laxalt, uh, uh, Michelle, he's running against uh, Dan Schwartz, who was kind of the outsider running in this race. Adam Laxalt has already raised a whole bunch of money. We know that uh, he's backed by Sheldon Adelson, who was going to help him uh, uh, through uh, his own money uh, and, and through super PACs. Talk about, Michelle, uh, what his message was. So one of the things that sort of struck me was that it was pretty candid about his personal struggles. And uh, even the video that his campaign website now has, this four-minute biographical video, is really touching on some things that were, were difficult parts of his past, such as his struggle with alcoholism that started, I believe, in middle school. Um, he had to go to rehab. He had to have a family intervention. He talks about it being a family issue. And he also talked about not knowing his father. And as we know, in 2013, the news broke that uh, the long-held family secret, his father was actually Senator Pete Dominici of New Mexico. And, and it was basically his friend's daughter that was Michelle Laxalt Adams' mother. Uh, so he talked about not knowing his father until he was an adult and talked about 
you know, getting a 1.0 GPA in, in college and then kind of turning his life around and dedicating his life to God. And, and so it was actually really uh, more personal than I've heard from Adam Laxalt. He did touch a bit on his, his policy vision sort of in broad strokes, uh, you know, that he wants to make Nevada the most economically competitive state in the American West and that he wants more school choice. He said he wants to continue education funding, public education funding. So uh, I think there was a lot of questions about that. What does that mean? Are you keeping it stable? Are you increasing it? What What does this mean? Because you, you want to repeal the commerce tax that Governor Brian Sandoval passed in 2015. How are you going to make that difference up? So there were a lot of questions that, that were sort of still remain unanswered about Adam Laxalt's ultimate platform. A few things to unpack there. Luce mentioned that uh, he, was, he only took questions for three minutes, uh, which is fairly astonishing even for one of these. I mean, yes, he had all the political rhetoric that, that, that we expect in an announcement. They all have that. But, Michelle, I've covered a lot of these, a lot more uh, than either of you guys, meaning uh, this is the weekly uh, admission that I'm old. Uh, but... I have never heard the kind of personal kinds of things that, that Laxalt talked about. We had known about his alcoholism. That had come up before. He was very candid about that. We knew about him uh, uh, being Pete Domenici's kid. He essentially said he didn't know who his father was until he was, he was, he was an older uh, guy. But he has a really compelling story. I, I, I mean, he, he, he was born in Nevada, but essentially immediately was whisked away by his mother to grow up in Washington. He came back here about five or six years ago, but he really struggled in his early life, went into the Navy. Uh, they, they taught, it's still a little bit murky to me what exactly he did over in Iraq, but he, he, he was, in, he, he did something with, uh, 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 detainees, uh, there, but Usually you don't, they put on their best faces, right? Politicians do what these, he really like essentially bared himself in front of, in front of everybody, right? Yeah, I thought it was a very, um, yeah, a vulnerable speech in certain ways and, and things that people might not know about him. And, you know, the fact that he, he's one of the politicians in the state that really doesn't talk to the media very much. Um, so this was actually kind of, you know, burying his soul a bit. Yeah, I, I thought so too. And, and he doesn't like to talk to the media. And it's he, he's one of the youngest and, and, and least experienced both in life and in politics guys ever to run for governor uh, here. And, and, and so uh, it's interesting. He wouldn't talk to the media, but, he, but he's bearing his soul. He's telling this very emotional story about, about his uh, life. And it seems to me that they're going to use that as kind of, you know, here's this guy. Yeah, he might not be that experienced. You might not know that much about him. But look at what this guy's been through in his life, right? That's the pitch. Yeah. And I think that kind of hits at a kind of gut level, personal level. People right. are going to be, you know, kind of impressed that he's come from that point um, and has really had this pretty dramatic turnaround story in his life. I wonder, Luce, you, you, you as as the uh, uh, Spanish page editor for us, and, and you talked to a lot of folks out there in the Hispanic community, and you mentioned about the controversy about him uh, being part of the lawsuits uh, against the Obama administration. There were protests. Uh, I think you were at the session when, when, when there were a lot of activists outside his uh, office. They blocked the road for a while uh, in, in Carson City. Do you hear talk about Laxalt at all? Is he that one? Because one thing about Laxalt is even though he had a big name from, from his grandfather, Paul Laxalt, many decades ago, most people don't know uh, who Laxalt is now. Even his name recognition isn't even that great. Is there talk in the Hispanic community about him at all? No, if we hear uh, his name or what he's doing is probably through these uh, progressive groups, and they also focus on immigration or when they go to his offices and 
protest. And that's kind of the approach we, or the information we get from him, which is why it's so important for us in the Spanish page to start uh, informing about him. So they become familiar with him because we're going to have elections next year. So we need to know more, not only about him, but the rest of the politicians who are running for campaign. And we, sh and we should tell people, just one second, Michelle, that you're going to have a lot of coverage on the Spanish language page, especially in major races like this. There are four candidates right now, at least, major candidates, and one minor candidate, Jared Fisher, who is running uh, for governor. So go ahead. Yeah, Luce and I did a story over the summer about the Latino vote, and, and one of that, you know, one of our stops was a, a forum that was put on by Democratic legislators and progressive groups. And there's just a certain level, a, a, a kind of a, an elevated level of discourse around Adam Laxalt among those um, those folks. And and they're very concerned about uh, that he'll have veto power if he's if he's governor. And he is uh, takes positions that are, are more conservative than Governor Sandoval. So there's there's a level of fear that I think is more elevated than with any of the other candidates. He's been very active and outspoken. He, is, he has not distanced himself as other Republicans, including Governor Sandoval, have from Donald Trump and, and, and Trump's policies. He didn't answer very many questions. We don't know how he really stands about what's going on about DACA. Now, had, had, he didn't say anything about DACA, right, Luce, at, at this? No. <laughs> not, not a word, right? No. And so it's interesting. You mentioned uh, Sandoval. We both did. Sandoval's name did not come up. Uh, at, 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 at this event. Our, our colleague Riley Snyder, uh, uh, the, the expert in uh, internet forensics, uh, had downloaded an old the previous video. We should say Adam Laxalt delayed his announcement for a month because of the terrible uh, tragedy on October 1st. But from the original video to the current one that is now there, they edited out a part where he said he works well with Governor Sandoval or something like that. There's clearly some tension going on there, right, Michelle? Yeah, and in that month between the time the original announcement was supposed to happen and now, you know, we had this story about the, the Adam Laxalt website revealing his plan to repeal the commerce tax. Now, he'll say he's always been opposed to commerce tax, but it was in writing there and he, he wanted to support active efforts uh, that are going on. Um, Ron Connect, the controller, has a, a ballot measure he's trying to qualify. So it was just a little more concrete at that point that he wanted to repeal the commerce tax. Governor Sandoval, during this this month of October, basically, um, was quite bothered by this and spoke out pretty strongly on several occasions about um, Adam Laxall's plan to repeal his, what is his signature policy achievement, was, was getting that tax package passed through a Republican-controlled legislature and then using it to back up a wide slate of education reforms. So during this time, the relationship has probably even become more strained um, because of this public criticism of, of the commerce tax and and Sandoval's back and forth about it. Uh, real quickly, before we move on to another topic, since you brought, brought that up, the, another issue uh, uh, that Riley got out of uh, Governor Sandoval uh, and showing some tension between himself and, and uh, uh, Adam Laxalt is this issue, an issue you've covered a lot, which is pot and the issue of, of, of pot lounges in which Laxalt declined to, to, to put out an opinion uh, on that, which clearly irked the governor. He said, I think, I think the phrase was he said it wasn't helpful. So that that's just another level of this, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, the governor, the Legislative Council Bureau put out this opinion saying, yeah, there's nothing wrong with um, local governments coming up with rules on on pot. And Governor Sandoval was immediately saying, I don't think that's correct. Um, I want a second opinion from from the state's lawyer, which is Adam Laxalt. But when the tax department requested 
Adam Laxalt's office to write an opinion and, and weigh in on this dicey issue. They, they basically said the tax department has no jurisdiction over this type of, of marijuana consumption lounge, and therefore we're not going to weigh in. It has nothing to do with you guys. Um, so I think Sandoval was was troubled that the office stepped away from the issue totally and didn't basically give a legal opinion for, for the client being the tax department. A, a couple of facts here, of course, are relevant. Uh, Brian Sandoval knows wherever he speaks. He used to be an attorney general here in this state. He knows what the attorney general should weigh in and not. Both Sandoval and Laxalt were against uh, question to the, the, the marijuana question. And we should mention, because whether or not it's relevant, uh, people will bring it up. Sheldon Adelson, who is the biggest private donor to uh, Adam Laxalt, is very much against uh, uh, marijuana legalization, mostly because his wife, who runs drug clinics, they believe it's a gateway drug. So there's a lot going on go, go, going on there. Uh, one of the issues that, that came up, and, and I know, Lucy, you're, you're very interested in, and, and Laxalt has talked about, and Michael Roberson, who is essentially Laxalt's unofficial running mate, they don't run as a ticket here, but he's running for lieutenant governor, has a ballot question on, and Dean Heller is now talking about, is this issue of sanctuary cities, which came up during the legislature, and which is going to be a big issue in this state. Definitely, John. Republican Senator Michael Robertson turned in a proposal on Monday to amend Nevada's constitution and ban sanctuary cities. He will still have to collect more than 100,000 signatures for the measure to be on the ballot. Robertson has been critical of a bill that Democratic Senator Ivana Cancela introduced but never came up for discussion in the legislature. It will limit local government cooperation with federal immigration agents. She says it's a way to prevent local government money from being used to the federal government's job. Robertson says the measure will keep Nevada safe, but Governor Brian Sandoval says the proposal is unnecessary because non-Nevada cities are uh, sanctuary cities. There's fear that if the policy takes effect, immigrants will not report crimes or help police solve cases because they think the local police will help deport them. Professor Michael Kagan even says that it will help criminals stay on the streets by harming the relationship police are trying to make with immigrant communities. Well, professor Kagan, who's been very outspoken on this issue, and we should say he's a law professor, he understands the ins and outs of this, he did an interview uh, this week uh, on, on KNPR in which he talked about this, and he, and he alluded to what you just said, that essentially this ballot question, because it's so broadly written, could actually help criminals. Uh, women who are being abused by their husbands will be, will be less... Uh, they'll be reluctant to call law enforcement. There is no evidence at all, not just Sandoval, but even Metro during the session, you remember, uh, Michelle, didn't say that this is a big issue. They were, worried, they were worried about Cancella's bill because they thought it might cost them federal funding. That was the main issue. They didn't say there's a problem. Uh, they don't want to be handmaidens of the federal government. I mean, these arguments came up in Carson City, right? Yeah, I think the fear is almost more about the perception if the federal government thinks we're a sanctuary city. Um, of course, there was that 2014 press release that was put out by the sheriff that has landed, you know, Clark County on a lot of lists of sanctuary cities, even though maybe the practice wouldn't stand up under, under a definition of sanctuary cities. And, and just to be clear, there's not a legal definition for sanctuary cities. So it's kind of all in people's perception. 
and of course cities in California have have wanted to be called sanctuary cities and and take steps towards that but but again there's not like a legal definition there's no for legal it. definition of it it means something different to, to, to everybody who uses it it's a very I think the Democrats are worried about it because it has become it had such a negative connotation now in Roberson and I believe Laxalt and Heller are exploiting it I'm wondering though loose because I, I I don't speak Spanish but you, you go out into the community you speak Spanish what does what does the phrase sanctuary city mean out there in the Hispanic community? Is it, is it something that people, you know, chafe against, that, 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 that they have a negative reaction to? Or does it mean something different to everybody in, in the Hispanic community? I don't think everybody's, like, very familiar with the actual term, but immigrants usually just want to be safe. And other issue we just mentioned is about cooperating with the police. They have always been struggling with that since I've been covering communities here in Nevada for almost 17 years. That's one of the biggest issues they struggle. They don't get the community, the Hispanic community, to trust them to go and report these crimes. So they put together all these campaigns, community events. So they try to close this gap between authorities and community. And the Metro has actually said uh, many times they, they don't want to have that kind of fear. They don't want the Hispanic community to think that they're going to go house-to-house searches looking for, for, for undocumented people in there, and they, and they don't want people to think that's what they're going to do if they come and report crimes to Metro. Metro realizes this is a problem, right? Yeah, and Luce actually has been through this Hispanic Citizens Academy that Metro puts on as a way to try to build this trust um, that's sometimes lacking between the community and the police force. Um, So there's very deliberate efforts to try to build these relationships. And I think there's, you know, the fear that this would come across as, as, you know, the metro becoming kind of an extension of ICE and, and you can't trust anything they're doing in the community. And Metro certainly doesn't want to do it. I don't think most local law enforcement officials want uh, to have it. But since since, uh, uh, Michelle mentioned it, talk about this, uh, uh, because I don't know much about it and probably people don't know. What is this Hispanic Citizens Academy that you went through? Talk about it a little bit. (laughs) Well, I started uh, becoming familiar with it by reading about it. I think it has been going on for uh, almost 15 years. And it's an initiative of the uh, police is a group of Hispanic police officers who are actually the teachers of this academy is um, imitating, I will say, or following the patterns of the English one. And it's a free academy. It goes over uh, 10 weeks and they cover different topics such as uh, drugs, domestic violence, traffic laws. And it's an excellent opportunity for the community to actually be face-to-face with police officers in their own language and question them about anything. And usually Sheriff Lombardo goes there for the first class and makes sure to tell or let the assistants know that they are free to ask any kind of questions they have, like Take opportunity or take advantage of the fact that you have this police officer right in front of you to talk uh, on by one or in a personal way and just trust them. Yeah, I mean, Approach the, them. It seems like this is an attempt to say we're not the enemy. You know, we're, we're here to protect you uh, a, a, as well. The, 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 we have Spanish-speaking uh, officers. We, the, if there are crimes committed in your community, we want to uh, prosecute them. We want to catch the offenders as much as we do. In, in any, it's, it's, more, it's more of a, like to try to tamp down the fear, right, that, that, that's out there, right? And also, if you know, as an immigrant, you are new to the law of the country and you don't know the traffic laws and you have questions or you think everything is the same as in your country. So this uh, police academy 
actually has a special class to talk about the differences between what happens in your country and also in some countries I will speak for mine, I'm from Mexico, you don't trust the police. You think they're corrupted or you just don't trust them. So you bring that fear or you don't trust them and you bring that when you're here in the United States. And of course, the police here know, are aware of that issue. So that's another reason why they have this Hispanic Citizens Academy. And at the end of these 12 weeks of class, you get a diploma or a certification and you graduate from the Hispanic Police Academy. Did, did it change your perceptions uh, go, going through this? Definitely. Was it helpful? Yes, very, very helpful because, uh, of course, I always trust uh, the law and everything. But like I said, it's a way to become familiar with even with the traffic laws. You know, you think everything is the same and it's not. And also, I think it makes you more conscious or aware of even speeding. You don't want to deal with that. And, and at least for the year when I uh, was attending the class, they took us to the uh, Clark County Detention Center, like a tour. So you can see and experience, at least for, from that tour, how it looks. And, you know, you don't want to be there. So when you see all these things, I think it makes you think in a different way. Well, I, I'm going to take advantage of having you here, Luz, and ask you one other one, one other thing uh, that I think a lot of people, including myself, I think, are guilty of this too. We talk about the Hispanic community and as if it's monolithic, as if there's just maybe most people think that most people are in the Hispanic community are from Mexico, but it's a very diverse uh, community, right? And 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 talk about how it might people might uh, from Mexico might perceive things differently uh, than, than 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 immigrants who have come here elsewhere, right? It's very diverse, right? Within the Hispanic community. That's right. And I'm so glad you bring that up, John, because even when we covered these uh, stories, you know, we have been covering stories from Venezuelans or El Salvador, uh, Guatemala, all these communities, Spain, even Europeans. I mean, it's not only Mexicans. And of course, some people from Central America get upset because they say, okay, when they say Mexicans, they think we all are Mexicans. And it's not right. So they actually would like the rest of the community to become familiar with their culture, their food, and everything. We even did a story about that. And we have been covering the topics that are affecting them in yeah. their countries and here. I hope people go and look at the Spanish language page because you have done a lot with with with, with uh, immigrants who are not just from Mexico. And you and Michelle did this fantastic multimedia piece a few weeks ago that, that, that is on uh, the Spanish language page. People really should go and check it out. You're doing a fantastic job. Uh, on that page. Before, before we uh, go on to a different topic, though, I want to go back to Sanctuary Cities for a second, uh, Michelle, because another story that you wrote about, and this is no coincidence, right after Adam Laxalt announced the next day, Wes Duncan, who's a former deputy of his, who is is been known to be wanting to be attorney general, just waiting for Adam Laxalt uh, to announce. But Sanctuary Cities actually came up in that interview that you did with Wes Duncan and State Senate Majority Leader Aaron Ford is a person who was involved in that issue. He was the one who took Ivana Kinsella's bill and essentially entombed it. I don't think she was that happy about about that. Uh, that's clearly something he's going to use in that race too, right? Yeah, I think um, with Wes Duncan, uh, the Republican Attorney General candidate now, you know, I think he's trying to take a little bit more of a moderate approach, but you did see in, in what he was telling us what is kind of going to be the focus of the campaign and how he's differentiating, differentiating himself from Senate Majority Leader Aaron Ford. 
Um, and of course, the sanctuary cities thing come, came up. He said he, he doesn't think sanctuary cities are, are a good way to go. He acknowledges that Nevada is not one of them. But he he's concerned about how uh, the bill that was proposed by Ivana Cancella could potentially express sort of distrust in, in law enforcement or um, kind of tie their hands in a certain way, you know, related to how they might, when they encounter somebody uh, that is in the country illegally, it would tie their hands in how they could interact with them. And then, then he also spoke out against um, some projects that... Uh, that Aaron Ford did related to criminal justice reform, uh, some bills to restore more voting rights for felons and efforts to sort of ban the box, which means, you know, you wouldn't look at someone's criminal record until you're actually making them a job offer, as opposed to letting that be a factor earlier on in the process. So I think those are going to be some uh, wedge issues in the campaign. It's interesting, though, because you mentioned it, and th- those are wedge issues, and, and Wes Duncan is very conservative. He always has been, in the same way that Adam Laxalt is and that Michael Roberson, the new Michael Roberson, is. But Wes Duncan is not nearly as strident as, as those other two, but he understands that those are issues that he can use. He's the law and order guy uh, and, and running for the top law enforcement position. He's going to portray Senator Ford as being softer, uh, which is essentially what the Republican campaign, it looks like it's going to be uh, from from top to bottom. Uh, and it's interesting. Uh, it seems to me, Luce, and I don't know if you've picked up on this, but it seems to me that there's going to be an undercurrent of race in, 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 this, in this election, unlike anything I've seen in a long time. When you talk about sanctuary cities, when you say pro-felon, when you, when you, when you talk about these issues in, in this way, I'm wondering, I mean, the, 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 the sanctuary cities ballot question, Michael Kagan, the professor, law professor, mm-hmm. points out, essentially is written so broadly that the, the, the dreamers uh, could be deported. Uh, I mean, I would think this is just going to increase fear if this kind of rhetoric is going on in the Senate race, in the governor's race, in the attorney general's race, and probably in the lieutenant governor's race. Think about that. The four top races on the ballot, right? You are correct, John. And also, there's already fear among the immigrant community because what is going on on the federal level. So when we are going, when we are learning about these topics or that sanctuary cities are, uh, or is a very important topic for these candidates, of course, it's like bringing this issue or this fear to the local level. So it's going to, it's not going to help. Yeah, it's, it's gas on the fire to me. Uh, it, it really is. And it's, Somewhat disturbing. All right, let's wrap up by talking about something else that that that, that uh, I, I I know uh, you're, you're covering, uh, Lucy, and that's called Day of the Dead. Talk about that. Well, that's a big topic, <laughs> but I have been spending the past two weeks reporting on Dia de los Muertos or Day of the Dead. There are lots of celebrations in Las Vegas around this holiday, but I think it's often misunderstood because it's not a Mexican version of Halloween, even though it happens around the same time. I actually produced a Spanish podcast, by the way, let me talk about it, <laughs> to talk about the deep meaning of Dia de los Muertos and how it's different from Halloween. Uh, one of my guests was Professor Jorge Galindo, who explained the history of Day of the Dead, as well as the different elements of the unique altars that people produce as part of the celebration. Some of those are on public display this week, actually, at the Springs Preserve and the Winchester Cultural Center in Las Vegas. 
Luis, tell us a little bit more about the the Spanish podcast and, and kind of what the topics you guys usually cover are. Well, you are one of the hosts with me because you speak, speak Spanish as well, Michelle, but it's called Cafecito con Luz. And yes, we produce this Spanish podcast. We actually uh, interview some of the legislators when during the past session. Some of them surprisingly speak Spanish or we didn't know. So that's so they're that's news for the community as well. So we are not only cover politics because we also have covered, for example, about the uh, earthquake in Mexico, the efforts to help both Puerto Rico and Mexico when they went through this uh, disaster and uh, community events as well. I, I think actually it's been great. Uh, I, I've mentioned this to the entire staff and to Elizabeth uh, Thompson, the managing editor, because it's not certainly not a majority, but a significant number of these legislators now speak Spanish, and they come and talk to you, Luz, and, and, and they feel more comfortable in a different way, I think, talking in Spanish. And so you've gotten news out of them that maybe we couldn't have gotten just by having English language interviews because they feel comfortable uh, with you, because people think you're nice, Luz, going in, right? And then they find well, out. <laughs> it depends on the questions I ask. I don't know for how long they're going to keep thinking if I'm nice or not because elections are coming. But yes, that's other goal we have for the Spanish podcast, John. Uh, as we get closer to 2018 and with this election cycle, we're definitely going to start inviting them to the podcast, both Republican and Democrats, so they can uh, be closer to the Hispanic community, and especially the Hispanic community, to become familiar with these names and what they're talking about. And we should tell people that not only uh, do, do you do original content on, on that page, uh, which is great and, and, and the audience is growing, is but you, you will often ask us to translate major stories on the English language page to be put on on that on that page as well and and so uh, before before we wrap up the podcast so I just want to ask you one question about day that explain you say it's often called the Mexican Halloween but it has nothing to do with that at all what is the reason for the holiday the reason for the holiday is to honor those who have passed away to remember them and it's a celebration of life actually the, the ones alive the the ones who are alive are just uh, gathering and sometimes goes to the cemetery, but it's not to be sad or scared. It has nothing to do with fear or horror or even those violent monsters. But it's not a frivolous say. holiday the way the, the Halloween kind of is. It's not a fun holiday. It's, it's more of a somber holiday, right? That's right. And it's, it has a lot of meaning. Every single element, if, when, if you have a chance to visit this, this place or altars, at the Springs Preserve Winchester Cultural Center, which has been having this uh, festival for 17 years in a row, you are going to have a chance to actually see what I'm trying to describe because there are no enough words to describe all the meaning and these visual elements that each, each element has a very deep meaning. Well, before I ask Michelle well, to, to look ahead and, and say what she's working on, I just do want to say here, and I, and I mean this, this Spanish page has been e even better than I ever thought it would would, would be. You've done tremendous work, and I think you're going to keep doing more and more variety. Uh, I give Michelle all the credit in the world. It was her idea to bring you on. I can't, I, I can't think of anything that we've done that isn't going to be in the long run more significant for the Nevada Independent than your outreach uh, to the community, the effect that you're going to have now on these elections, because you're going to be able to be doing a, a, a lot of that. We should tell people not just that you have a podcast and that we have the Spanish language page, but we have a Spanish language Facebook page uh, as well uh, that people uh, can go visit. It's, it, it's great that you came on the podcast. It's even better uh, that you're working with us, Lou. So finally, Michelle, um, t tell me about what you're working on. Give, give our podcast uh, 
uh, listeners uh, a preview of some future Michelle Rendell story. Uh, well, I'll mention uh, earlier this week, I got to go to a center called the Day Reporting Center, and it's uh, the culmination of one of the bills that passed in the past legislative session. Um, you know, Nevada is embarking on an effort to try to keep its prison population under control, maybe reduce it. It's kind of bursting at the seams right now. We're having to send people out of state to Arizona, pay money to, to keep them out of state in a private prison. That's controversial for a variety of reasons. Um, so one of the things they want to do is to try to, to make it so that when you go check in with your parole officer and maybe you have a, a minor technical parole violation that's hurting maybe you but not hurting other people around you, you would be sent not back to prison or back to jail for, for, for weeks, but you would be sent to this day reporting center where they have more accountability on you. You go through drug treatment or, or have counseling on anger management. Um, it's just a little more of an intense experience than just going checking a box with your parole officer each month. So I got to tour this facility, talk with some parole officers, and so I'm looking forward to writing the story about you know what legislators did last session and how they have high hopes that this is going to help reduce recidivism, and ultimately reduce the prison population. And no one in the state is covering the whole prison issue better than you are, Michelle. When are we going to see that piece? Uh, Hopefully this weekend. Hopefully this weekend. <laughs> see, Michelle is smart enough, unlike some of the others, <laughs> to not give definite days. Michelle and Luce, thanks for coming on the podcast this week. I, re- I really appreciate it. That's all the time we have for this edition of the Indie Matters podcast. We always want to know what you think. Our listeners, if you have ideas, criticism, or even praise, you can email us at ideas at com. Check out our site. I'll mention it again, the Nevada independent.com and as you now know we also have a Spanish language page you should check that out too you can also go on iTunes and subscribe and rate us please do that we're on Google Play and uh, other platforms as well I always want to thank our great hosts at KUNV here on the campus of uh, UNLV and as always the person who makes sure that this is actually online at some point our fantastic producer uh, Joey Lovato who always makes us sound podcast smooth uh, do you want to say it in Spanish? Say podcast smooth in Spanish. Is There's there a no Spanish translation. version? There's no translation, right? But you sounded very smooth uh, anyway, Luce. I'm the only one who never does. Anyhow, thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next week on Indie Matters. Así que, Michelle, muchas gracias por toda esta información. Gracias, Luz, y también a ustedes que nos escuchan aquí en Cafecito con Luz, el podcast en español de The Nevada Independent. Nuestro estado, nuestras noticias, nuestra voz. Nuestra voz.